You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're concluding our study of the life of David. We're calling Hills and Valleys. With this week's message, here's Senior Pastor Lance Bourgeois. Well, it's happened. I've hit that age where I read obituaries now. You know, because uh, I've got friends, loved ones, relatives, parents of loved ones that have all hit that phase of life. And when we start thinking about those things, maybe you're familiar with this, uh, you think about reading those obituaries. There's some that I save because those people are meaningful to me. There's some of them that say because they're inspirational, and then sometimes you may find one that's just kind of funny, right? And because somebody wrote something or somebody, a loved one wrote something that kind of grabbed your attention. And so when we think about that, I was reading about one. This gentleman, uh, his name is Douglas Legler, an 85-year-old from Fargo, North Dakota. He got to the point where he told his kids, I don't want a long, flowery obituary. Now, I don't know what you would put in yours. Sometimes we talk in terms of uh, what would you want somebody to say at your funeral. That's fine. Maybe you thought, what do I want written in my obituary? And so you can have any number of things that you think, this is my goal. I want to share the gospel. I want to share my life. I want to share God's faithfulness. I want to share what I did in my life or those uh, who went on before me or those who are left after me. Doug had a different goal. Doug had a goal that he wanted to be succinct. Now, his children honored that as they told him because as he passed away, his daughter posted the Bibli- his bibliography, obituary right as he wanted. Simply put, Doug died. Now, I don't know how you could be any more succinct than that. And that could be your goal. I just want to be clear and to the point. Nobody could miss this. But then I think about those other things. How would it, what do we want somebody to say at our funeral? Maybe you've heard that you think about that, that headstone uh, that has the date of birth and the, and the date of passing, and you've heard talks about that dash, that what really matters is that dash. What is it that we did from the day that you were born until the day that you passed? How did you invest your dash? Well, those are all solid questions that you, we could ask you, and you could think about all the things that you'd say, this is what I want my dash to entail. I guess I would ask you to consider what it would be like to have the dash that David had. The dash that David, the one we've been studying over the last several months. And we see his phrase in a couple of different ways. We see it in 1 Samuel 13. This is when the prophet's talking to Saul and says, but now Saul, your kingdom shall not continue. We're changing gears. We're changing paths. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Think with me about if on your tombstone that dash was, this was a man or a woman that had a heart after the Lord. That's a dash worth living, right? We go on and we see the same phrase in Acts chapter 13. When the Lord had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all of my will. See, I think somewhere when we ask that question, what does it mean 
to be a man or a woman after God's own heart. If you've been here with us over the last couple of months, we've talked about some good days of David. We've also talked about some really, really poor days of David. We've seen him have hills. We've seen him have valleys. And within those, we could think, what does it mean to have a heart after God? I would love for that to be said about me. And then it doesn't last very long before I think, why would anybody ever say that about me? I know what I struggle with. I know when I see those sinful things pop up in my life, and I hate them, and they're disgusting, and I'm embarrassed, and they bring guilt, and they bring shame. Man, I would love to have that be said about me. And then I think about David. I think, well, David was involved in all kinds of things. And if that could be said about David, maybe, maybe, just maybe, it could be said about me. What would the context be? What would the criteria be? I would tell you that one of the things that I think it does point to is this. Is at no point in the life of David do we see him go worship a false idol. We never see him turn away to another god, a false god. But somehow it still seems like we need more than that. We need more of an understanding about what this could mean. And I think uh, Chuck Swindoll points to this when he says this. What does it mean to be a person after God's own heart? Seems to me it means that you're a person whose life is in harmony with the Lord. What is important to him is important to you. What burdens the Lord burdens you. When the Lord says, go to the right, you go to the right. And when he says, stop that in your life, you stop it. And when he says, this is wrong, I want you to change, you come to terms with it because you have a heart for God. See, all of a sudden, what we see now, I think, is this reality that says that part of having a heart after the Lord is more than just not going to another God, it's going to our God and allowing God to direct our paths. It doesn't mean we don't wander. It doesn't mean we don't have bad days. It just means we keep returning to the Lord. And that even though we fail, it means that we get back up and we go back to the Lord again, which I think we see over and over in David's life. So this morning, we're going to spend our time in 2 Samuel chapter 22. I'd invite you to open up your copy of Scripture if you have one, or if you've got the Version app on your phone or another Bible version on your phone, that certainly is fine too. We're going to spend our time in this, and we're going to be looking at this psalm. This psalm here, I was about to apologize for that. This is really uh, uh, parallels to Psalm chapter 18. And when we read it, it is so similar to Psalm chapter 18, the whole uh, chapter of chapter 22 reads as a psalm. And so I'm probably going to, on accident, call it a psalm several times today. Just know we're staying in 2 Samuel chapter 22. Don't jump to psalms, even though I'm going to mess that up probably several times today. So 2 Samuel chapter 22, invite you to follow along with me. He said, David said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. Let's pause a second and see where he begins. Look at all of those titles that he uses for the Lord Clearly, this is a man who's walked with the Lord. He has a history with the Lord. We've talked in recent weeks about our enemy doesn't have to make us hate God. If he can just get us to forget God in seasons of our lives, he will have achieved a significant purpose. 
Because it's when we forget God that we will then begin to forget the other image bearers around us. Anxiety will will rise up in us. We will then seek to seize control in whatever false way we can seize control. That will lead us into sinful patterns which will create collateral damage for everybody around us. That's what happens when we forget God. And so when we come to this passage, when he breaks out in this moment, I want us to recognize that what he does is he reflects on the past. Because he, like all of us, has a past, a present, and a future. And if we're really honest, our remembering the past is what gives us hope in the present. And we'll deal with the future starting tomorrow because tomorrow has enough worries of its own. But today we live in the present, but we reflect on the past because it gives us hope. When you look at all these names that he gives to the Lord, rock, fortress, my God, my rock, my shield, the horn of my salvation. You know, military used to walk with a horn and they blow the horn and it was a signal of their strength. This is my salvation. Here I come blowing the horn of my salvation. You need to know who my God is. And that becomes his cry. I want you to know. I want you to know exactly who he is. He begins with remembering. Where does he go from there? Look at verse 5. For the waves of death encompassed me and the torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. From His temple, He heard my voice and my cry came to His ears. I want us to look at where He is because He finds this moment where He's not in a good place. I'm sure you caught that, right? This isn't David thinking in terms of his strength, what he brings to the table. He calls all those names out to the Lord because he said, I know who you are. I reflect on the past. I know who you are. Time and time and time again, you have showed that to me. And today, here I am once again. Maybe you've been there where you're like, Lord, here I am again. I am in trouble again. My enemies have surrounded me. I feel like the cords of death have entangled me. I feel that again. See why he began with his reflection? Because I've seen you. I've seen what you do when you show up, God. And so he finds himself and he pours out his heart. And he says, in my distress, I called upon the Lord. Did you see what the Lord did? He heard. The Lord heard. I want you to think with me about what it feels like in those moments when we cry out to the Lord. Sometimes that cry is so faint, we don't even think that the person next to us could even hear it. There's just no energy. There's no passion behind it. You're done. And yet, the sovereign creator of the universe, the one who sits upon the canopy of all of creation, hears. David calls out, and God hears. Elsewhere in Scripture, we see this imagery where it talks about God condescending. It's like he puts his hand to his ear and he leans down so he can hear better because he wants to hear the cry of his people. And you and I can say, well, I don't even know why I would cry out to him. I mean, he's busy. I mean, he's holding the stars in space. He's caring for everybody else. I don't know that he could hear me. And then we come to these passages where it talks about God putting down his ear to hear us. I tell you, I had a sweet story years ago. I, it was the first time our church has done a lot of trip, uh, mission trips down to Jamaica. The first time I was down there, uh, I was down there for a month with, with several churches, and we had brought somebody to do vacation Bible school uh, for us and to lead that program where we were running that uh, with the children's homes we were working with. 
And when I heard about Carol, Carol was great. When I heard about Carol, Carol was the teacher of the year for the state of Tennessee. I'm like, oh, she's a ringer. This is awesome. We're really going to have an effective vacation Bible school program. You can imagine my shock when Carol walked in, and Carol is a little person. She was all a four foot six. And I'm thinking, okay, Carol, hey, let's talk about BBS. And when Carol came up and we started talking about our story, and I said to Carol, Carol, tell me about teaching. What was that like when you were teacher of the year? And she, you know what she said? She said, it was incredible. She said, I think, I said, why do you think you're such a great teacher? What's made you successful? And she said, my height. And I said, really? And she said, how many first graders can look eye to eye with their teacher? And it never had occurred to me. I'm like, that's genius. And it works because when she said, eye to eye communicates you matter. Eye to eye communicates that you matter. I'm listening. You had the focus of my attention. And it was because of that that when I had kids and I'd come home from work and they'd come up and run and they stop that. If you have small children, one day they're going to stop running up to you when you come through the door. But I got to where I would get down on one knee so that I could look them in the eye and communicate, you're my world, you matter. I think that's what God does. When we cry out to him, he puts his hand to his ear and he leans down to hear you because you matter to him. And by the way, isn't that the gospel? We'll talk more about that later. Is that Jesus left heaven to look us eye to eye that he might communicate our worth and our value and our significance. That's the gospel. But look what happened. Because uh, it's great. I mean, I love that the Lord heard him, right? How many of us want to be heard? We want to be heard. I'm glad he heard him. But that doesn't necessarily change anything if the Lord doesn't act. So look at what ends up happening. Look with me down at verse 8. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Now recognize this. We're about to read several verses. Because he is the creator, because of all of creation is at his disposal to do whatever he chooses to do with creation. Watch what happens. It's not only that David knows his, his history. He reflects on who God is. He cries out to him. The Lord hears him. But watch what happens. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. Over and over and over you hear creation. See, so often we might think God is aloof. God doesn't care. God is preoccupied. God has other things going on in his life. And the reality is that simply isn't true. He is attuned to each and every one of us who call out to him. I think that's why Peter captures it this way. Cast all of our anxieties upon God. Why? Because he cares for you. He cares for you. Get this. The God who sits upon the upon the. Uh, canopy of all of creation is attuned to you and to me. And when he moves, he can move all of creation to meet the needs that he wants to meet. That's who he is. So when we come back and we start looking at all of these verses, we see exactly what's happening. Look at verse 14. The Lord thundered from heaven. The Most High uttered his voice. Oh, see, first David cried out, God heard him. And now God speaks because the enemy never has the last word. 
God has the last word. And he begins to move out, and he begins to speak on his behalf. Look what happens. Verse 17, if you are a person who writes in your Bibles, underlines in your Bible, highlights in your Bible, here are some words for you. Here's your assignment. Look at all of the verbs that God does on behalf of David and us. Verse 17, he sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted me. See, we all have our coping mechanisms in life. Those moments where we try to seize control, those things where we feel like, well, you know, this is a salve to my soul. I mean, I can do this. We're wrong, but we all have them. But in this moment, recognize what David says. I I, I had no choice. I mean, I was going down for the count. There was no way. They were too mighty for me. I had nothing left. I was surrounded. And then those verbs, look at those verbs. He sent, he took, he drew, he rescued, he brought, he rescued twice. What's the imagery? He rescues. That's who he is. And then catch that last one. He delighted. He delighted. I wonder really how many of us think that it's possible that the Lord could delight in us. Because we've been so disappointed in ourselves so many times, right? We felt the guilt. We feel the shame. We, we can give you the laundry list of things that we do wrong. Sure, we try to hide them. We try to manufacture a list of the good things we do. We embellish those. But in this background, what we have is this idea that God delights in us. And so I think that's why David learned to go to him. And I, I wonder if part of us, why we're so reticent to pray, why it takes so long for us to pray, is we really struggle with the idea that God could delight in us. When he tells us to cast our anxieties upon him, it's not because he's like, oh, here comes Lance again. Oh, man, he's a disappointment. I can't believe he's not further along. No, he delights in us. He delights in us. And all of a sudden, that invitation is that we can do it because the reality of this first point, when we talk about reflections on a heart after God, if we want our dashes to be, here lies a woman or a man who had a heart after God, I think the first of the reflections would be this, is that we find ourselves in this position here that when times are tough, we trust that God is our only security. There's no other security. That's it. All our enemies can get bigger. They can get more numerous. It doesn't matter because we've known who our God is. We look at our past. It gives us confidence and trust in today, and we will deal with tomorrow tomorrow. But today, he's enough because he's our security. That's who he is. Look at this second one. It's not only that we, he's our security. He also is our light. When there's nothing else in the darkness, he's our light. Look at verse 21. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. I want to stop for a second because he's going to play this out a little bit more. Is in the darkness, he found light. And that light was based, in some measure, to his faithfulness as a believer, to walk with the Lord. This isn't his salvation is based on that. 
It was in accordance with the darkness he was in and the light the Lord provided for him. Now, we're the same way because the Lord uses that darkness in our life to draw us to him because all of a sudden in darkness is when you really can appreciate light. I mean, in a room full of light, if somebody lit up the the back of their cell phone right now, I'm not sure we could see that. Turn off all the lights in this room, have somebody turn on their cell phone light, and you're like, oh, that's beautiful. I can see kind of a little bit. See, we can only appreciate the light in the midst of the darkness. And so he finds himself in darkness. But it's only because of what's been going on around him. But look at what the Lord did for him when we come through these passages. Look down at verse 26. "With, With the merciful you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man you show yourself blameless. See, all of a sudden we start seeing some of that imagery. How faithful was he? Well, look back up at verse 22. For I kept the ways of the Lord. I did not depart from God for his rules were before me from his statutes I did not turn away I kept I was blameless before him I kept myself from guilt see David I think would point to the fact that I stayed with you think with me in the darkness how often in the darkness that we find ourselves our thought is you know what I just need some salve right now it doesn't even matter what it is anything that could give me a little bit of light give me a little bit of light and I think part of what David would want to teach us is No, no. In the darkness, you lean into more obedience. That's not a license to sin. That's not a license for poor decision-making. You lean into the Lord more in those moments and trust for the Lord to do what only He can do. Well, did He do it? Well, if you look down, we'll see where He says uh, in verse 29 and 30. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. He says, you know what? It's in that darkness that I recognize, I don't know what's around me, and I get immobilized by fear when I can't see where I'm going. He said, the the key to turning on the lights is to lean into the Lord and to obey Him. More, not less, more. And all of a sudden, when the Lord turns on the light, guess what? I can go up against a troop, I can see walls, I can get over walls. But man, sometimes that darkness is so deep it keeps us from going there, doesn't it? I remember hearing Beth Moore years ago speaking about uh, the pit. She was talking about Joseph and what happened with his brothers in Genesis, if you're familiar with that story, where his brothers threw him into a pit and left him for dead. And so Beth Moore, she was talking about how the darkness of the pit, and she compared it to three options, if we're really honest. Sometimes we get pushed into the pit. Somebody else pushes us in, into that level of darkness. And we might always want to say, I got pushed into it, and somehow we, uh, we minimize our responsibility in it. But she talked about a second way. Sometimes we misstep. We misstep. We're not being attentive. We fall into it because we're not paying attention. We're not on guard, and we step into it. And then the third type of pit she calls us out for, where she said, sometimes we just willingly go jump into the pit. Now think about those pits in my life and in your life, and you can define what your pit is. I bet you you have one, whether you were pushed, misstepped, or jumped into it. But what we see is this, is that pit is a dark place. And sometimes when we're in the pit, we don't go to the Lord with it. We start trying to find other ways to turn on the lights around us, right? We've talked about that acronym, HALT, hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. Those four things that happen in our life that when temptation comes, if we find ourselves in a state where we're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, that we're more susceptible to falling into that temptation. I guess I would ask you to consider, tell me about a time when maybe David felt like 
He wanted to turn on a light, but he chose not to lean into the Lord. Bathsheba comes to mind. I'm not satisfied. I'm not settling whatever's going on around my life. And so in my, maybe he was hungry, maybe he was angry, maybe he was lonely, maybe he was tired. And he said, you know what? I'm going to go try to find a light to light myself up. And he found Bathsheba. And then that leads into a world of trouble. See, I think that's why David looks up and says, you know what? When I find myself in darkness, I feel insecure in my life, so I'm going to look back on how God has been my security before, and I, need, I feel like it's a dark place, and so what I need is some light, and you know how I get the light? I lean into the Lord and I obey Him. Now that is not natural to most of us. But he's learned it. And the same opportunity is there for us to learn this as well. And all of a sudden, he finds himself in a new position. He's our security. He's our light. This next section, look at it. When we're weak, he becomes our strength. Now, if you look back at the beginning of 22, what we already looked at in verse 5, the waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. Death confronted me. I was in my distress, right? And so we read all those words. That's his emotional state. Look at what he says in verse 32. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God is my strong refuge, and He has made my way blameless. Whoa, David, where is all this strength coming from? I mean, that sure sounds like a guy that's standing strong, doesn't it? See, the Lord's doing that for him. Because the situation didn't change from verses 5, 6, and 7, other than his reflection is on who God is. So all of a sudden, he's finding the strength. Okay, my security's here. The lights are on. I've got a little bit of strength. I've got a little bit of strength to face whatever is around me. I've got a little bit of strength that I'm going to step into this. And watch what the Lord does in a supernatural way that only the Lord can do because he is the one who equips us, right? He has to be the one to equip us. Watch what he says in verses 34 through 36. He, God, made my feet like the feet of a deer. And he set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You've given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness has made me great. So let's break that down. How strange, right? At least in my thinking, that what has made him great is the gentleness of the Lord. Lord, it's your gentleness that has brought that about in me. Yes, you're a warrior, God. You have all the power you could ever want or need. You have all of creation at your disposal, but you know what's changing me? Your gentleness. Why? Because he's got such a tender heart. He's the God who looks you in the eye. He's the God that leans down to hear your prayer. He's the God who is with you. He says, refers to this shield. Give me a shield of your salvation. Back in David's day, one of the things that would happen was this shield was more like a movable wall. I mean, it was huge. And so you had people whose job was to move the shield, and you could stay behind it, which allowed his feet to be agile. He could move about. His hands were free, but he's got his shield. It's not one of those small arm shields. It's this big, huge wall shield that people are carrying. And he says, you know what I'm hiding behind? The shield of salvation. You gave this to me which is why my feet are free to move. It's why my hands are free to do battle. But back in his state, his condition, remember, I feel like death is all around me. I feel like everything is surrounding me. 
I feel like I've got all these mighty enemies around me. I've got nothing. Matter of fact, maybe we would say it this way. I'm too weary to even walk. And you think about walking on a rocky path. You think about what that would be like. How you could lose your footing. And all of a sudden what he says is, He's made my feet like the feet of a deer and He set me secure on the heights. I don't even have enough strength in my legs or in my ankles to walk. Not to mention, and that would be on a flat path, but here we're up in the heights. We're on rocky soil. And what I'm finding is, because of who you are, God, you have exchanged my feet for the feet of deer. See, you can't, David can't point to himself and say, that's me. There's no way he can say, that's me. That's what the Lord's doing. I don't know how to fight. I can't even lift my hands up anymore. And his wording is, all of a sudden, you've trained my hands for war, and I can bend a bow of bronze see whatever the situation is he's looking for the lord the lord has now said i've got i am your security i am your light now he says i am your strength you can say well that defies logic and i think they would say you're right it does defy logic but it is my god in heaven who's doing this for me and that's how i step into this look at the next one this is the last one in the section that he looks at and when our future is foggy or fuzzy. The Lord is our hope. Look with me at verse 47. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. And capture all of those personal pronouns. It's not that he's a God who can do that. He's a God who does that for other people. He now looks at him and says, this is my God, and he's doing this for me. He wants to do it for you, because that's who he is. In the midst of everything going on in his life, he comes back. The Lord is interceding on his behalf. If the timeline is accurate, and I'm trusting Old Testament scholars, this is not what my brain does. I'm trusting Old Testament scholars. Is that David was named at 12 years old that he was going to be the next king. Five years later, when he's 17, he still isn't king, but he fights Goliath. David, where is your security? Where is your light? Where is your strength? See, it never was in himself. It was always the Lord. And it was another 13 years later before he becomes king over Judah. Another handful of years later before he becomes king over all of Israel. This is David's life. David's walked in this. That's why these are the personal pronouns that are there. The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. I guess I would ask you to consider, is he your rock? Do you know him? Do you know him? Because he longs to be your security. He longs to be your your light. He longs to be your strength. He longs to be your hope in the same way that he was to David. If you turn the page over to verse 50, for this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and I will sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. David says, because I've experienced this, I'm telling everybody. I'm telling everybody, you need strength, you need security, you need light. Let me tell you, you can go a million places that are not going to provide it, but you can go one place that will always provide it, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wants you to see it. He's the God who leaves heaven so he can look you and I eye to eye. And he walked on this earth and he never sinned. Scripture makes it clear that the price for our sin, the sin that you and I have done, separated us eternally from God, and the price tag on that was death. But, If somebody else came and lived this life and didn't earn that death, he could maybe pay somebody else's death. And if he could conquer death, then he could do it for all of us, which is the gospel message.
is Jesus Christ came to this earth to look you and I in the eye to say, I want to offer you the security and the light and the strength that you need to live in this world because this world is broken. And maybe we don't go to him enough because we don't recognize that he cares for us. I think that's why David looks up and says, for this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, sing your praises to you. I'm going to spend the rest of my life singing your praises so that everybody knows. Because everybody lives in the same broken world I do. But I have found the one who offers me security, light, strength, and hope. I think the question David would have would be, do you know him? Do you know him? You know, we call this series the ups and downs, the hills and valleys of David's life. And time and again, our team got together and we'd look at these stories and we'd say, I don't know, is this a hill or is this a valley? And we'd be like, I don't know. I mean, come on, it seems pretty good, right? Well, if you have an ESV study Bible, you have this chart in there, although I've modified it a little bit. So let's talk through some of these. So let's talk about a hill. Back when David was this eager, holy warrior, let me add Goliath. I'm all in for Goliath. And then he remains in his palace, which set up the sin for Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, right? So how did we have a hill and a valley that were linked together? Well, how about this one? Well, he married honorably. Well, and then he commits adultery with Bathsheba. That's a valley. He protects Saul's life. No, Lord, this life, he's made in the image of you. I can't hurt him. He's your, you're his sovereign. You're the sovereign. You have put him in this role. Well, next thing you know, he's plotting Uriah's death. And then you could say, well, he was really decisive. No, the Lord's calling us to this. And then in the valley, like, I don't know. I don't know what I want to do with that. And then we can look at him and say, he was fearless when outnumbered. I mean, come on, I'll take on Goliath. I'll take on all the Philistines. And then fearfully takes the census. That was two weeks ago. See, when he was winning, he attracted thousands of followers. When he took the census, he lost 70,000 followers. So what's a hill and what's a valley? Because I think we come to the reality that we would say, well, sometimes our valleys become hills, right? And if we're really honest, if you've ever been to the mountains, you know that they have this thing called the tree line, and nothing grows above the tree line. Everything is below the tree line. And so those valleys frequently are the places where things grow. And if you and I were really honest, we'd say, man, just give me the mountaintop. I want to live on the mountaintop with God all the time. Problem is, there's not a lot of growth on a mountaintop. And number two, if everything was a mountaintop, then it would just be flat. And so this calling that you and I get to live in the valley and watch God meet us in the valley and then grab our hand and walk us up to the mountaintop to say, do you see me now? I'm your security. I'm your light. I'm your strength. I'm your hope. And we say, oh yeah, I see it now. It's really clear. No trees above the tree line. But it's not that, we're not that far away from the next valley, are we? Let me ask you this. Think about the cross. Is that a hill or a valley? There's a valley when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It became a hill for all of us. It's the point of our salvation. And that's where we learn to trust in this. Matter of fact, Lloyd Ogilvie, who was a minister and then served as a president, excuse me, as a chaplain to the Senate for a number of years, writes this about Peter from the New Testament. Peter had built his whole relationship with Jesus Christ on his assumed capacity to be adequate. Maybe you've been there. I've been there. That's why Peter took his denial of the Lord so hard. His strength, loyalty, and faithfulness were his self-generated assets of discipleship. The fallacy in Peter's mind was this. He believed his relationship was dependent on his own consistency and producing the quantities he thought had earned him the Lord's approval. Been there? That leads you to a valley, doesn't it? 
And then God grabbed your hand and said, I'm your security, I'm your light, I'm your strength, I'm your hope. Now let's grab my hand and let's walk back up to the top of the mountain again. And let's grow through that. Because what David had learned, what Peter had learned, is what the Lord had said about himself from the beginning. The Lord, the Lord is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He learned that to be true. Even for me? Even for you? Yes. Isn't he weary of us going back to the valley? I don't know, but I know that what he says is this. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There is rest in that as he shows up time and time again. Because in the end, reflections on a heart after God. David wasn't perfect. He wandered. I can identify with that. I'm guessing you can identify with it too. He never turned to a false god. He continued to come back to the Lord. And I do think that in the end what we see is this, is that to have a heart after God is to live out that God alone. We don't turn to other gods. That means we're always there, but it means we don't turn to other places for these things. It's the reality that God and God alone is our security, our light, our strength, and our hope. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.